John 14, verse 15 to 23, 31. That's 1082. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For if he lives with you and will be with you, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of teaching. I have said to you and (laughs) remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the Prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. Good evening. Well, a very warm uh, welcome to you. Uh, Well, a warm welcome to me, I suppose. I'm the visitor, aren't I? Forgetting which way around this is. Uh, Lovely to be with you. Thank you for the very quick uh, bio. Uh, My life lasted 30 seconds. I wouldn't be much of a a, a program if we made a whole program of it. But in those 30 seconds, what was missing, actually, is that I was also a resident in Southampton because I am a Southampton graduate. Uh, Yeah, I I studied at Southampton University a few years ago now. Uh, I I did used to pop along to Bov Bar as well, though um, I went to a different church (laughs) most of the time. Uh, Portsford Church, I was baptised at Portsford Church actually, about 1980, that's not supposed to get a cheer, Uh, about 1988, 89 I suppose it was, a long time ago. I studied archaeology originally actually at Southampton, uh, but I I actually changed courses. Anybody studying archaeology here? I love archaeology. Brilliant. Well done. Uh, I discovered after a few weeks, archaeology meant spending most of my Saturdays standing in wet English fields. It had nothing to do with Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I switched and I did English, actually, which was much drier, uh, much <laughs> in more than one way. And, uh, and anyway, I graduated from here. I've, I've subsequently got more interest in archaeology, but that's for another time, perhaps. So John chapter 14, our passage this evening... 
is a, a wonderful explanation of the work of the Spirit. And I want to start with this theme tonight, uh, what it is we think we really need out of life. What do we really need to make our lives complete? Uh, we are constantly being sold things all the time, whether it's those supplement uh, brochures you sometimes find with lots of obscure items you never realize you needed, or on Instagram now, the feed brings up, it does for me anyway, uh, lots of items I never realized that I needed in my life. And when I see them, I show them to my wife and say, we really should get this. I came across coffee and brew, which will appear on the screen. This is an in-shower coffee maker. So literally, while you have your morning shower, the coffee can be percolating. Uh, perhaps it's partly packaging that makes us think we need something different. Uh, you can now buy diet water, uh, quite what normal bottles of water are like that you can package diet water. I came across the Easy Egg Cracker, which is a solution to egg cracking. I thought we just like tapped it on the edge of the pan, but you can get a device for the kitchen. Or this one, uh, glow-in-the-dark toilet paper. Uh, I guess it has its uses, though we do have light switches in most toilets anyway. Maybe camping. And then at a whole nother level, at a whole nother level, maybe in answer to this question, we remember the words of the very famous Beatles song. The Beatles recorded this sing single in 1967. All you need is love. All you need is love. All you need is love. I'm not going to sing it, but all you need is love. Love is all you need. Love, 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 love. I've written it down. Love, 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 love. All you need is love. It loses something without the melody, I must admit. But I tell you this about that 1967 song. The Beatles never toured that song live. Even while they were recording the song, they were contacting the lawyers to begin the legal disputes over ownership of the Beatles' material. They broke up soon afterwards. You see, all you need is love is a wonderful strap line, maybe. But how do we love? What is love really? Easy to sing, but hard to do. And you might say this passage this evening is all you need is love, the love the Spirit brings. But there's a lot more to love than meets the eye. Chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. And that's part of the challenge. But notice which way around this is. If you love me, you will keep my commands. In other words, obedience follows love in the Christian life. If you do love Jesus, you will want to keep his commands. Unlike rules and regulations, we keep them out of fear or punishment or promise of reward. We obey Jesus because we love Jesus. We are caught up in this relationship with Jesus day by day that makes us want to obey him. It's true in life generally. If there's a relationship you have, somebody you love very much, whether it's a parent whether it's an employer, whether it's a partner. If you love them very much, you want to serve them. You want to delight them and bring them pleasure. Obedience never earns love. 
But love certainly generates obedience. And what love also generates are the things we need most in life. And that's what we find in these words of Jesus describing what's about to happen. He is describing the coming of the Holy Spirit that's going to make this powerful difference in our lives. First thing is to do with love, love and God's Spirit. How God's Spirit works, bringing love in our lives. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Advocate. Who is this advocate that Jesus promises? An advocate generally means something like a counselor, advisor. It can be used in legal language. Somebody who draws alongside in that legal capacity. Uh, some translations use the word comforter. Uh, those of you with little children or babies might think the word comforter is not a particularly helpful uh, word to use. But he is like the strong right arm. The power and the strength that will enable us to live transformed lives. And in particular, what we need to draw attention to is that little Greek word, another. Another. You see, the point about another advocate is we've already had one. The disciples in John 14 have already had an advocate with them. A counselor, a comforter, a legal representative. And that's been Jesus. They've had Jesus with them during this ministry. And now Jesus promises another advocate, one like me. And in that sense, as Jesus is within hours of his arrest, the important point he's making is you will not be alone. Even after my crucifixion, and you can't yet see beyond what's going to happen, but even after my resurrection and my ascension, you're not going to be alone. Because this advocate will continue the presence of Jesus with you. These disciples are going to face uncertainty. They don't know what lies ahead. Not just in the coming weeks, but in years to come. There will be uncertainty. And yet, as they face that uncertainty, Jesus promises another advocate who will be with them and step by step, day by day, take them through whatever lies ahead. Jesus promises continuity over chaos. Uh, Jesus promises here that the Spirit is going to continue this work so that in a sense, we've never for 2,000 years been without Jesus. Whether you are with him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, or there in Jerusalem, or here in Southampton, or down in Bournemouth, wherever we are, wherever we go, Jesus has never been absent. He's been with us every step of the way. Now he's described here in verse 17 as the spirit of truth. Uh, we come to call him the Holy Spirit. And that sense of him being the spirit of truth reminds us that right at the heart of who God is, is a God of truth. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth and the life. And so the Spirit continues the very presence of God among us. Now at this point, we've got to just spell out what this really means for us when we use that language of Spirit. Because a lot of Christians get their theology, well maybe not a lot, but some Christians get a lot of their theology on this point, more from Star Wars 
than they do from the Bible. They imagine the spirit as like this cosmic force, this cosmic force around them, binding the universe together. And as a force, as an impersonal force, something to be manipulated. And the spirit comes to be seen as a power at work in the world that is impersonal. That's a million miles away from what Jesus is telling us here. That is a whole world away from the biblical world of the Holy Spirit. He is a person. The personal pronoun is always used of the Spirit. He is a person at work among us. Not some kind of energy, but another like Jesus. And that presence of Jesus is what we know as the Holy Spirit himself comes to remind us and guide us and teach us and comfort us in the same way that Jesus did. Now verse 17 raises the obvious question we might have. There's an obvious problem, verse 17. And that is the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Invisible. And anyone who wants to be skeptical, anyone who wants to mock, they can mock that this is some kind of invisible God we're describing. Let's take a reminder of where we are in the Gospel of John tonight. Uh, we're right in the middle of what's called the farewell discourse. This is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure. Jesus won't be with them for much longer. And already there's been 2,000 years since his ascension. And Jesus promises here that even though the world cannot see him, we will know him, a work among us. It will be evident. And it will be evident by some of the characteristics that we see being described here about how the Spirit will work. Let's just take that word love for a moment. Love. What is love? You can't see love. And yet the powerful bond of love that connects men and women together, that connects families together, that connects a church like above bar church together, it is the felt, powerful presence of God among us of the same order as the power of love. You can't see it, but you know it's there. And love transforms people. Love changes people. I think a church, really, should be like a, a billboard for the kingdom of God. When we meet together, the activities we're involved in, the things we do, this isn't just duty not just religion or ritual. This is the powerful presence of God at work. And men and women should take notice. Men and women should take notice not just of a building or a program, but of the Spirit of God at work, invisible, but powerfully displayed through the love of the men and women he brings together. See, verse 21, this is the evidence, okay? Verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. This is the evidence, the proof. We'll keep his commands. We'll do his work. We'll seek to display the person of Jesus to those around us. Anyway, Judas asks the obvious question as well. Judas in verse 22, not Judas the uh, betrayer, as we're told. Uh, verse 22, why do it this way? Why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? You know, Jesus, why don't you do it more publicly? 
Uh, why don't you demonstrate this Spirit's work in a way that is absolutely public and crystal clear to every skeptic, to everyone who wants to mock Jesus? Why don't you make this clearer? And there's an answer. Second uh, point here, love and God's Word. We're a people of the book, you know, as Christians. It's a nickname Christians got, people of the book. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, though I use a Kindle, I'm not a great fan of it. I want a physical book. I love paper. I love having, love having books on the shelf. I love the smell of a book. Not all books, but most books. I love the smell of a book. I love the feel of it. And as Christian believers, we're a people of the book who love to read and engage with words. And it's not just books. There's something deeper for us as believers. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Now notice that. You might have thought that's just a repetition of what Jesus has already said, but it isn't. Verse 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Not just my commands, but my teaching. When we begin to encounter Jesus, when we begin to read through the Gospels in a fresh way, we get captivated. Many of us have felt, it's felt to us as if Jesus walks off the pages of the book. We get captivated by the love and the life and the teachings, the words of this man Jesus. We begin to realize that Christianity cannot just be described as a philosophy, as poetry. Christianity is a person, and it centers on this person that split our whole calendar in two, B.C. and A.D. It centers on this person who's been splitting lives in two ever since and turning us upside down. And verse 24 tells us why these words of Jesus are so important. Middle of verse 24 there. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Jesus, and ultimately the Bible itself, is not just human language. It's not just human words. It's not just an epic adventure or a great story to read. These words have divine power. This is the word of God we begin to discover. And so Jesus says in verse 25, all this I've spoken while still with you. Okay, that makes sense, these last three years. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things and will remind you of everything that I have said. You know, what's being described here, first and foremost, I know it's got application in other ways to us today, maybe. Maybe you're reminded of God's word in difficult situations. But first and foremost, what Jesus is saying here is, I'm preparing for the New Testament. I'm preparing that what I've taught you will be written down. You see, Jesus never wrote a word down that we've still got. I mean, he wrote in the sand at one point, but we have no written words from Jesus passed down. He spoke in memorable ways, told stories and parables. He spoke in ways that no doubt involved repetition, so his disciples would remember. And now he promises the Holy Spirit will do a special work of reminding you of the things I've taught you so you can pass them on. 
Jesus was preparing the way for this book you have in front of you, for the completion of the Bible in the Old Testament. That's why the manuscripts of the New Testament matter so much. I've already said I, I started studying archaeology. I didn't finish it, but I do continue to have a great interest in archaeology, so let me reassure you of that. Because if you teach Bible, you've got to teach some archaeology. If you love the Bible, you've got to love some history. Because God has spoken through history. And the New Testament itself has been subject to intense, critical scholarship. And we love it. Critical scholarship is not a bad thing. It's not a bad word. Uh, critical scholarship is where, for centuries now, scholars have pieced together the manuscript evidence to see whether we're, what, re, what we're reading today has been faithfully handed down from, from what was originally written all those years ago. And the New Testament passes with flying colors, those kinds of tests. You've got on the screen behind you there, oh sorry, behind me, behind, well, it's behind you as well actually, the way I'm looking, but you've got on the screen behind me uh, a fragment of John's Gospel, just as an example. The earliest fragment that everybody agrees to in terms of the New Testament. There are a couple of others that might be earlier, but the earliest one every, everyone agrees to dates to about 120 AD. It's called the John Ryland's Fragment and it's uh, held up in Manchester it wasn't found in Manchester, by the way. That would give it dubious provenance. But it was found probably in Egypt. Nobody's quite sure where it was found because it appeared on the black market. But it probably comes from a place called Oxyrhynchus, uh, near, near the Nile River in, in Egypt. And it's uh, this incredibly early fragment, but it's one of 5,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts and over 20,000 in other languages, you know, Syriac and Latin and Aramaic and so on. And it's this wealth of manuscript evidence, some of it very small, like the John Ryland's papyrus, some of it a complete manuscript of the New Testament, for example, all dating through to the beginnings of the printing press and mass distribution. But it's this wealth of manuscript evidence that allows scholars to piece it together and know that what we have is, has not been subject to Chinese whispers. It has been faithfully copied and shared and passed on down through the centuries. Critical scholarship, New Testament critical scholarship, provides us with a wealth of evidence that we can trust what we have is what the disciples, the apostles, originally wrote down. I mean, take that fragment again for a moment, because it is remarkable when you think this. John, who would have written these words, wrote them somewhere around Patmos, North Mediterranean, round about by about 70 AD, let's say. This fragment is found in Egypt. It's not the original that John wrote. It's a copy of a copy, but in Egypt, around 120. So within 50 years, this is circulating and making its way around the Mediterranean such that a copy of what John wrote can be found in the hot, dry deserts of Egypt. And that's because as a people of the book, Christians were copying and circulating and passing on what mattered so much to them which is the teaching of Jesus, the words of Jesus. Words of Jesus on that little papyrus there from John chapter 19, faithfully copied and handed on. So the New Testament, with this wealth of, of evidence to show it's reliable, is the product of the Holy Spirit at work 
reminding those disciples of what Jesus had taught them so they could write it down, so that this could go to the ends of the earth. See, the New Testament, therefore, is the product of the Spirit of God. We must never divide the Spirit and the Word. The Holy Spirit produced this Word, preserved this Word, and enables us to read and understand this Word in ways that we could never have done without Him. Spirit and Word belong together. And the Holy Spirit provides us this Word, so we're not just relying on some emotional experience. We have the objective word of God in front of us, even this evening, 2,000 years later. We can hear the very voice of Jesus himself. And that leads me to a last, a last heading, and it's the peace that the Spirit brings, love and God's peace. Had to be careful I picked up the right glass then. Kind of change the evening. You know, we need peace. For all the things we might say we need, we need peace. We need peace in our personal lives. Estimated now about 10% of adults will face some form of depression. And uh, many, many more are going to face various forms of stress and anxiety. Exacerbated maybe by social media. But in other areas of life with bereavement, loss, unemployment, uncertainty... We need peace. And it's interesting, you know, the Bible always locates peace in the heart. Uh, years ago, and I mean, I remember this even in teaching theology, we used to say something like this, that the ancient people had a misunderstanding about the mind. We now know that the emotions and the reasons are all up here in the brain. But these poor ancient people, they thought it was in the heart. And that was just the way they saw the body kind of physiologically. And they didn't understand the power of the brain. Well, of course, they didn't understand everything we know. But it's very interesting that in recent years, I was reading a paper from 1991 where uh, neuroscientists were looking at this, that in recent years, it's been discovered the heart is directly connected to the brain. In fact, it gets a nickname, one part of the heart, the little brain. Because actually the brain is connected to our thinking and to our emotions. When your heart is broken, literally, your heart is broken. That's why in terms of stress and pressure and anxiety, we now know breathing exercises are very important. Focusing on your heart is very important. Because of this profound connection of heart and mind. And Jesus speaks here using that ancient physiology of our heart needing peace. Our hearts needing to be free from trouble. Because for so much of our anxiety, we, we feel it there. And it's not just the stress and pressure in our minds, of course. It's the world around us as well. We need peace desperately. Peace in my mind, peace in my heart, and peace in this world. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Who would have thought, who would have thought a year ago, coming out of that pandemic, 2020, the year that should not be mentioned, and we go straight into a, a major European conflict? Who would have thought? And the implications of that, that conflict in, in Europe, I know many of you are probably affected quite directly by it, 
But the implications for a, a cost of energy crisis, a cost of living crisis. There's plenty of reasons to be stressed. There's plenty of reasons to think this world does not know the key to peace. But we might want to remind ourselves it's always been this way. The world has never been able to offer a lasting peace. But what does Jesus offer? My peace I give you. Up on the screen, you can see the great altar in Rome to Pax Romana, still there to this day, built by Augustus, the emperor, commissioned in 13 BC, 13 years before Christ. This is the great altar of Pax Romana. It's the altar that celebrates the Roman goddess of peace. What is Pax Romana? This is what the Roman Empire claimed. Literally just a handful of years before Jesus was born, this altar in Rome proclaimed that Rome had done the impossible. It had secured peace across the known world. You could travel from unruly Britain, well, not Scotland. Scotland was out of it. That's another story. But from nearly Scotland, all the way to India with relative security and peace. What a fantastic achievement of Augustus. But I'll tell you how he achieved it. Through military might, suppression, and violence. And what did that kind of peace achieve? How long did it last? It faded away to be dug up by the archaeologists, preserved in the museums. What about the peace of Jesus? Well, here's the great contrast. This Jewish peasant built an empire on love and through his Holy Spirit at work propelled this love to the very corners of the world that 2,000 years later is still demonstrating the power of God in streets and roads all around us, restoring marriages in houses all around us, giving young people a hope where they've been told there hadn't been any hope in schools and in families. This love of Jesus for 2,000 years has been proving itself as something this world can't hope to offer. I just want to finish with a final quote, bringing this point together. And it's a quote actually from a, a man called Henri Bertrand. Now, Henri Bertrand was a general, and he was appointed in 1815 as a friend of Napoleon to accompany Napoleon into exile. Napoleon, the great warrior, general, emperor, who'd also caused havoc across Europe in a different story, finally the British had uh, called him to account, and we sent him into exile. Uh, Napoleon wanted to go to America, but the British said no. Spiteful lot. Well, we sent him to uh, St. Helena in the mid-Atlantic. Poor Napoleon. And this general, Henri uh, Bertrand, accompanied Napoleon to exile. And he kept a little record of what Napoleon said. And he recorded these words of Napoleon in his journal. Napoleon said, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. What do you most need? What do we most need?
What we most need is the love and empowerment of the Holy Spirit that continues the presence of Jesus among us. And in this farewell discourse, as Jesus prepared to leave his disciples, as Jesus would head to the cross, we're going to head there too. And as we head in the Lord's Supper, these elements that remind us of the cross, we remember tonight that we're not just looking back into history. We're looking to today and what Jesus is doing now in the power of the Spirit and to the future and what Jesus could do through us as his Holy Spirit works among us in this empowering presence. Let me pray for you as I hand back to Ed and the worship team. Lord, I want to thank you that as we share together tonight, we've got a lot of needs among us, emotionally, financially, physically. But we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we find not everything we might want, but everything we most need. And we thank you that through his Holy Spirit, we can know a love and a word and a peace that can give us the empowerment to do your work. Bless us, we pray, as we share together now around the Lord's Supper with your empowering presence. In Jesus' name, amen.